Here, here's the man himself, Greg Boyd. Give him a, a warm you. round. Uh, do, do, do you have a watch I could borrow? I've already borrowed two quarters from you today. It's <laughs> like a, a total mooch this entire weekend. I'm just... Uh, okay, I, I do need a watch. Did the person who lent me the one last night get it back? Because I, I didn't give it back to anybody. Did you get it back? Because it, it, otherwise it would be stolen. Because that would never happen at a Christian retreat. Fantastic. Well, how are you all doing this morning? You, you look absolutely marvelous. Thank you, Kelly, for that honest testimony. I really appreciated that. That just... That, that's the kind of honesty that we're talking about, uh, being honest with God and with one another. Um, and, yeah, just, just, just uh, to be real. Uh, having all these Q-tips around here is a major distraction for me. Is, is there anybody else, I, honestly, where I, I, I don't usually go public. Since we're talking about being honest and confessing, and uh, I have something of an addiction to these. Does anyone else... Can, can we come clean? Like, do you find, like, when I, 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 I this has nothing to do with keeping clean ears, because I've got the cleanest ears on the planet, because I so get off on doing this. <laughs> Did anyone else, it's like, almost like, you know, you should have to go to a special store to buy these or something, or they should be prescription. Well, ever since, and, and it says in the box, do not put in your ears. Well, that's, that's their purpose. <laughs> what, what else would you do with this? And it's just like when I just ream out the ear. Oh. There's, not, there's not a time when I go to the bathroom, number two, and don't have a, uh, a, a, a Q-tip here. Just so you know. Just, you wanted to know that, didn't you? See, and that's going to be hard to stop. It just feels so good. It, it's like I, I can't do it enough either. It's like I always... Too much information. Yeah. No one else is going to come clean that you, you like to. Okay, we got a couple hands in the back. Okay. See, I, that's not that weird, is it? That, that, I know it. I, I, it's like way down there, and you got to be careful because it, it might hit it too hard, and then. Uh, get, oh, it's just so nice. <laughs> now I'm warmed up. Well, this isn't going as planned at all. Uh, th- this is not what I had scripted. I really was going to focus on what we'll start talking about tonight. Then again, who knows? Uh, but I, I, to talk about living the already amidst the not yet and being first fruits. And I think that's a vitally important thing about living out the faith and having a theological framework for that and having a story, a coherent story that you live in. Because that's what forms our interpretation of everything and our motivation for everything. And that is all what I really planned on, on, on nailing it. And then last night, I just felt led to go in this direction talking about Really, sort of the presupposition of all that. What's the nature of faith? Because I've just been made very aware of how much bad theology is out there pertaining to faith. What is faith? Turning it into a psychological gimmick. A self-talk kind of a thing. And, uh, and, and then it indicts people because they don't think they have enough faith and, and all sorts of other stuff. Um, it's something I've really been in the grips of myself because I have... Really, I've always been sort of a Jacob Believer, I've always been a wrestling believer. Faith has never come easy for me, um, and I've never known whether to admire or to, you know, kind of judge those people for whom it does come uh, easy. I'm not supposed to judge anybody, so I'll get, but I, but I don't know whether to admire that or, or to see it as something. It just is what it is. Some people just can believe. It's like I, I just believe. 
And I think to myself, well, that, that's maybe nice, but then you'd be doing the same thing if you were born in a Mormon household or a, a Hindu household or a Muslim household. You, you know, luck of the draw, wherever we are. You, you, whoever tells you, whoever gets to you first, you're going to believe it. So, you know, praise God, you believe in Jesus. But for other people, it's just, it doesn't come that easy at all. And I suspect uh, it, for college students, you have a higher portion of people for, for whom it, it doesn't quite work like that. Uh, so it's important to talk about this. Faith as a covenantal commitment. It's saying, I do. It's not the absence of questions and the absence of doubts. Uh, it, it's rather the framework for questions and the framework for doubts. There's a commitment there. Some days I just feel so in love with my wife and just feel so blessed and so fortunate and, and it's easy. Other days I don't. And she doesn't either. That's hard to imagine. I imagine you know, being married to me and not feeling fortunate for it. But there are days where she just doesn't feel that blessed and fortunate. Uh, but, but, but that's why we have faith. That's what, that's what faith is for. You see, it, it, there's a commitment there. We don't go up and down and, uh, based on the feelings or whatever. No, lo- love is this commitment. And the thing is, is that you find that there is a kind of reality you begin to uncover by virtue of the fact that you made a commitment that you'd otherwise miss. The best things in life, including knowing God and including knowing true love, comes only after you commit in the process of growing in that commitment. Uh, My wife and I have been through a lot of ups and downs in our marriage. We've had a lot of struggles. Uh, uh, Up until 16 years ago, we really didn't know how to be completely honest with one another. And then we almost blew the thing up as we started to learn how to be honest with each other. But over the time of staying in there and, and staying committed and learning about each other so different and, 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 and staying in the game and being honest with the problems and honest with the questions and working them through as best we can, what happens is, is you begin to enter into a depth of love that you never otherwise would have known. It's a precious, precious, precious thing. All the more precious because you had to work together to get there. Folks who are, fear commitment and, and avoid that or try to steer around problems, they never get to that level. They'll never discover that deepest kind of love. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. In fact, this is why I think, I, I think wrestling with God is built into the process. That's why he calls Jacob Israel. He's the one who comes and wrestles with Jacob. He wants us to wrestle because that's part of the growing process. We're supposed to wrestle. We're not supposed to stay toddlers in our faith where we're just... You know, they never get out of kindergarten uh, and it's all insulate our faith to protect it from the mean and nasty, ambiguous world. No, we're supposed to grow in this. And as a result of growing, you discover things about yourself and about God and, and the world that you could never otherwise have known. Now, you're always walking by faith. There's always going to be faith. It's, it's moving in this direction, even though I'm not certain. That's faith. But I find that the longer I'm at this, all other things being equal, it, it, it ebbs and flows, of course. But there are times where, and I'm in one of those times right now, where I can't even imagine the possibility of God not being real or of Jesus not being Lord. It, 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 there's just an experiential dimension, an awareness of his presence that is so real. And, and I can't imagine, you know... I can't logically prove that, but I also can't imagine existing without that. Um, faith opens up the door to a kind of awareness of God and a presence with God that you'll never get to otherwise. That's why I always encourage people, don't wait till you got it all figured out before you say, I do. And don't wait till you got it all figured out before you say, seriously, I do. 
there's a way sometimes folks have of, of believing, but it, it's sort of this. It's, we believe in case it turns out to be true, but we reserve the right to not believe so in case it turns out not to be true, and, and, and that's what sort of justifies our sin. In fact, it's very hard to sin and enjoy it if you're aware of God's reality in the process. To, to really go into sin, you've got to like turn it off, right? And so uh, there's a part of us that enjoys not fully being invested because it allows us to keep one foot off the door. Like the person who's married but cheats because this marriage may not work anyways. Keeps a foot out the door or something like that. We, we, we try to play it both ways. So, yes, we believe, but we're not committed. Well, that's not biblical faith, like we said last night. It, 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 with God, it really is an all-or-nothing thing. It, it, either you're in this thing or you're not. And, of course, you're always in the process of growing and you stumble and you're imperfect and there's struggles and strivings, all of that, yes. But, but, but you're there, you're in the game. Now, I, talking to Ryan last night uh, about kind of where to go from here, he thought it would be helpful, especially setting up this Q&A that's coming up. And I, I, I hope you can come and come with your question. That's my favorite thing to do, is just to dialogue about stuff. Um, but uh, to talk a little bit about how, how I got into the faith thing, how, how, how that works for me. And uh, give a little bit of my story, and then it's, use that to set up uh, kind of the, the, uh, what it is then to live it out tonight. And uh, um, uh, what that actually looks like in our life. So here's how I initially got into the Christian faith and, and how I came to faith and then how I lost it and how I got it back again and kind of where I'm at right now with the whole thing. Um, you know, I, I, I was uh, raised in this very, very dysfunctional Catholic home. I had to go to, in fact, I went to Christian school and I had to go to Mass every morning. And it was uh, said in Latin because this was before Vatican II. And I was a hyperactive kid, but they didn't call it hyperactive back then. They called it being demon-possessed. And so I was always in trouble. I was always, the nuns were always, in fact, I have to this day major neck problems because for two years straight, they used to hit me over the head with the, this uh, family Bible. Uh, they would give me these goody two-shoe girls uh, who sat in back of me, this big family Bible. And, and if I ever acted out, which I was always doing, you know, flicking boogers or, or doing something, they had the right to smack me over the head. And sometimes they smack me over the head even though I didn't do anything. So I, for two years, I had always had this neck pain, but I would never tell my parents because... You know, the, the nuns are always right, and I'm the bad kid who's always wrong. So that was my Christianity. Uh, my family blew apart sky high when I was 12 years old, and then it was just me and my dad living together, and so I got into a whole lot of drug, sex, and rock and roll, and that was pretty much my life for five years. I was just uh, out of control, wild kid. Um, although I still did sports and stuff because I was good at that. It was a crazy world because I would be doing drugs and also doing sports, and sometimes I would do it at the same time, and that was really bizarre. You know, you're running track meets on speed. It was just wild. Um, but, okay, but there was always this hunger inside of me. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, a, a young lady, actually a neighbor of mine that we kind of flirted with on and off, you know, for a number of years, we started going out and getting kind of serious. Um, and it turns out she was a Christian, although a, a real backslidden Christian. Uh, do they still use that term backslidden? Uh, she wasn't walking with God or anything. Otherwise, she never would have been dating me. But uh, uh, her parents went to this Pentecostal church. And so uh, we started going out. Um, and then she invited me to church. And the reason she invited me to church was not because she wanted me to find Jesus. Uh, she invited me to church because they were doing a contest where you could get a blow dryer uh, for bringing the most friends to Sunday school. And she told me that. She goes, listen, you got to come because if I get like three more people, then there's this really nice blow dryer that they're offering. Uh, whoever brings the most 
Yeah, this is a great evangelism strategy. But God will use anything. So um, she brought me to church, and to her surprise, I liked it. Because I was always asking questions about God. I, I was a self-declared atheist. But I, I thought there must be some kind of ultimate, you know, something, a oneness. You know, and that's why a lot of times I do, would do drugs. I was looking for that, that oneness the, to try to discover the unity of all things or whatever. We were looking for something. So I, I came, and there's something about this church that I liked, and I ended up a few months later at the age of 17 giving my life to Christ. And I had a powerful experience. I mean, it, was, I, it was really a dynamic Jesus encounter, because I was sincere. I was really hungry, really empty, uh, and, and uh, I, I felt God. It was a Friday night. This young lady was just, it was her first sermon ever, because this church was associated with this Bible school. And it was a really, I'm talking a major, fundamentalist, legalistic, holiness Pentecostal church. Really oddball. But I, something about it was just really compelling to me. And this girl this, did a sermon. She was so nervous, she just kind of read it like this. And it was a, a crowd much smaller than this one that was there at a, this revival service. And then she finally said, would anyone like to receive Jesus? And I went up to that altar, and I knelt down, and I accepted Jesus. And, and oh, it was powerful. And for that first year, I had, I had some really genuine encounters with God. In some ways, I look back on that with a, with a, with a not just a fondness, but, but almost an envy. This, this, this was a high school youth group that was just so out, uh, out there. We would have prayer meetings sometimes on Sunday nights till 3 in the morning, get up and go to school the next day. I, we, and the, the prayer meetings were like powerful. I mean, there was, the presence of God was there. It was just amazing. Now, I was also the most obnoxious, disgusting person my senior year in high school because I was one of these super Christians that, that I, 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 I didn't just witness to everybody. I preached to everybody. My popularity rating went so down that final year. It's been hard to go back to my reunions because I'm so embarrassed about how I was that last year. Uh, but I'm just, I'm an extremist. Whatever I do, I gotta go to the extreme. So, you know, I'm thinking that all these people are gonna go to hell unless I tell them. So all day long, all through school, and then I'm, like, I went from having this huge afro to a nice clean cut hair, haircut, I would carry my Bible. I was, ooh, I'm, I'm embarrassed talking about it. It is, but I'd go around, do you know Jesus? Do you, ah, ah, it was not the way to do it, but, but, I meant well. I, I meant well. So I had this beautiful encounter with Jesus. It was really, really real. And man, the joy and that there's a purpose in life and a meaning in life. And Then I went to the University of Minnesota. And one thing that happened was as soon as I became a Christian, it was odd, but I became a compulsive reader. I hated reading up to that point. I hated reading, hated school, you know, I, I, anything academic, because everything bored me. And now I found something worth thinking about. And so I started reading on religion and theology and philosophy, and I just loved it. The neurons in my brain, the ones that were left that I hadn't fried yet <laughs> from the drugs, uh, I started talking to each other. It was a new phenomenon. This is a thought. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and they started to connect. It was the weirdest thing. There's this, this communication going on up there. I, and I was just devouring this. It's like something worth reading, something worth being interested in. And, uh, but see, then when you start reading and you start learning, you're going to start, you know, thinking, you'll have to start hitting the, a bigger world with, with, with ambiguity and some questions and some challenges. And then I went to the University of Minnesota and I was majoring in philosophy and it took one semester for me to completely lose my faith. Just, it, it bottomed out. Um, and one of my first classes was a co- course on evolutionary biology. That was my biology requirement. Now, I'm coming from a super fundy background, right? So everything has got to be literally true. 
So I prepared myself. My pastor tried to tell me not to take the class, not to even go to college, but I, I was rebellious. Um, and, and so and I want to take this class right up front. See, this is how arrogant I was. And so I read books on evolution. I was going to go into this class and refute the professor. He's got a PhD in biology. I don't know anything about it. But I read two books on creationism. Uh-huh. I had two books that I read. And that's right. I know about the second law of thermodynamics and how that refutes evolution. Uh-huh. And, and, and those, those, how, how Piltdown Man was a, was a hoax. I, I got, so I come in there with all my evidence. And he had fun with me. He just sort of like, oh, you know, like, boy, second law. I never thought of that before, Mr. Boyd. Uh, it, it was just so, I was so stupid. So he carves me up daily in this class as I'm objecting. You know, it made it interesting. And, and then, then I took a class in the Bible as literature, and that posed all sorts of questions and the Gospels. And, and I could not find an intelligent Christian for my life. There wasn't any in my church. See, this church was really big on emotion and really big on spiritual encounters, which was wonderful. But no one thought about anything there. I think because they had the kind of model of faith we talked about last night where it's just too scary to think. You start thinking and you might start questioning and then that means you could lose your faith. It means you lose your salvation. Uh, You know, it's not worth it to think. Just believe what you're told and get on with it. And so I couldn't find anybody that would discuss anything with me. In fact, I was indicted when I would raise questions. I once went to my pastor... This is right before the end, when I lost my faith. And I had a chart of all the contradictions I found in the Gospels. I, I sat down, I, I started on a Thursday morning, and I went into a Friday night. I remember, I, I went nonstop. I, I, didn't do, I, I had coffee, and I just, I sat down with all these books, and I, I noted all of, this is my OCD coming out here, all, all the, the, the differences in the order and the wording of the Gospels. And then I drew up a chart, and I showed how they, they disagree. The order is all different. And I'm thinking, how can this possibly be the inerrant word of God? How? So I went to my pastor that Sunday, and I showed him the chart. And I said, I'm really struggling here. Do you have an explanation for this? And I went through that. I had it color-coded for him so he could see where there's you know, minor disagreements, major disagreements, order difference, wording differences. It was all right out there. It was like a four pages uh, taped together. I laid it out on, at his house on his uh, thing. And I said, what, what, we, what, what are we going to do? Because uh, these look like contradictions. And this is the Bible. And he, he paused and looked at it for a little bit. And then he says, well, I got one question for you, Greg. Have you been inappropriate with women? I was like, can we talk about the chart? (laughs) Are are, are we in the same universe here? And his response was, well, what I know is that no one ever questions the word of God unless they're running from it. So what sin do you have in your life? And I said, well, actually, I've had a good couple of months here. I'm clean, all right? I'm clean. Uh, Can we talk about the chart? How do you respond to this? And he he couldn't get an answer. It was like, you know, you you sometimes have to believe. You just press on. You don't understand, but you just press on. And there's a place for that, but this isn't it. I have to have some kind of coherence. My heart can't get on board with something that my head doesn't give it permission to get on board with. And mystery is fine, but you can't play that card right out of the gate. You have to struggle with this a little bit. And so I ended up just losing my faith completely. And it was, I went through nine months of hell. It was the worst nine months of my life. Because I wanted to believe. 
I mean, I, like before I, I was before I, when I was an atheist, I was uh, pretty happy. I felt empty on the inside. I was always searching. I always thought there must be more, but I could get by. And I could get high, and I, I, I had fun with that, and, and, you know, so it was okay. But then, to go from being, the, having this meaningless life, to now all of a sudden believing for this one year period of time that life has a purpose, life has a meaning. There is a God, and He loves you profoundly, and you're going to go to heaven, and you'll be there forever with Him. And, and, and there's things to do in this world, you know, and there's a reason to get up in the morning. What, that, is, that was just so fulfilling. But then to now lose it and try to get back to where you were, uh, you're far better off never having tasted of a purpose. Because now I got acclimated to that. And to go back to trying to live a meaningless life was so painful. And yet I thought I had no choice. And so I started reading a lot of Nietzsche and Sartre and these atheistic philosophers, you know, trying to find out how do they do it? How do you make... The world is so absurd and it's disgusting and it's revolting and it's meaningless and it's directionless. And, and I, I, trying to live that is, was so depressing. It was so depressing that I could not get high. <laughs> That's how depressing it is. And for those of you know, who've been down that road, you know that's pretty depressing. I, like, I would like, be smoking pot, and all it would do is get me more depressed. I was at a, I was at a party one time. I talked about a sorority frat party. I was at a frat party at the U of M, and they, they had wild frat parties, just crazy. And I didn't go when I was a Christian, but then I lost my faith. So I thought, well, why not? You know, there's no purpose or point to life, no morality, no good or evil, so just enjoy yourself. So I go to this giant party. And I just, all I could do was look around and be disgusted with everything. It was so irritating. I had a joint and I I was, but I was just getting more and more depressed. I I couldn't get to that happy buzz place. I want my happy buzz place. I couldn't get there. Then there's this girl who starts hitting on me and she was kind of cute. And, and I'm looking around and people are like fornicating like rabbits, you know, all over the place. And I, but here's the thing. Here's what was so irritating. I was disgusted with it, and yet my brain was saying, I've got no reason to be disgusted with it. There's, not, there's no morality that they're failing to conform to. This is totally appropriate. You know, it, it, just to do whatever comes pleasurable. So I was mad at myself for be, not being okay with this. And then there's this gal who's trying to jump in the sack with me, and I finally turned to her and I said, doesn't this bother you at all? I'm holding a joint here. I said, doesn't this bother you at all? And she's like, what? I said, but this is so cheap. This is so cheap. This is so empty. And no one even notices it. Shouldn't they at least notice it? Don't you get some points just for being bothered by it? Like, everyone's just throwing themselves. It's like we're amoebas or something. Uh, doesn't this bother you? And she's like, no. And I'm really losing the moment here, aren't I? Um, and, and, and I said, look, you're treating yourself like, like you're worth a quarter or something coming on to me. And that was pretty much the end of that relationship. <laughs> but see, there's this contradiction here. It was so miserable. I finally went. And, and, and two things happened that really began to turn me back to Christ. Which, if they hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here uh, today talking to you about Christ. Uh, one thing, I went to, at, at, really going into a dark place here, went to a professor that I, that I kind of befriended at the U of M, uh, who I knew was an atheist, a professor of philosophy, and I went to him after this class, 
And I said, you know, I just kind of laid it out. I said, can we go out for a cup of coffee? And we did. And I, I said, how do you, how do you keep going? I, I don't think I ever would have committed suicide. I, it's just against my, too much against my, the way I'm wired. But pardon me, wanted to. This isn't worth it. Um, and so I asked him, how do you, how do you, how do you keep going? What is it? Because here's the thing. We, we, we say we want to make the world a better place. But what difference could that possibly make? Because the world's going to end up dying anyways, being sucked into the sun. It will turn into a supernova, then a black hole. That's the way it is with all the suns. So in the end, the universe is going to die this heat death. It will be a total state of equilibrium, nothingness. So it doesn't matter whether we make the world a better place or not. And in any case, we're going to be dead in a couple decades, so it won't matter to us for sure. Why... Why keep going? All these dreams we have of buildings and improving the world or whatever, it's just dust in the wind. In fact, that song from Kansas was out right on this time, and it was really bugging me because it was so accurate. Just dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. So what motivates you? How do you keep going with this? This illusion. Love should conquer evil. But there's no real love. And in the end, it looks like evil kind of. In the end, death is the final word, nothingness. So it doesn't make any difference whether you've been a Mother Teresa or an Adolf Hitler. So I was asking him, how do you keep going? What motivates you? And he seemed like a fairly happy guy, too. How, how do you be happy? Tell me. And he stroked his beard for a while. He always was doing He always, In fact, when he would lecture, he'd do that. And then Descartes would have his... And so, ergo, cogito sum. Terrible lecture. So he'd be struggling his beard. And then he says, well, you know, when I was a younger man... I uh, read a book that really gave me a sense of direction. And I think it's what you're looking for. It's by Albert Camus. Uh, and it's called The Myth of Sisyphus, which sounds like a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> yeah. Got a bad case of Sisyphus. Uh, but Sisyphus is a Greek hero who defied the gods lived one day longer than he was supposed to live and was condemned to push a rock up a hill for all eternity. And he knew that going into it. He knew that if he defies the God, he's going to be condemned to push a rock up a hill. And, and yet he did it anyways. Sisyphus is a hero for Camus. I, what happens, I went out the next day, bought that book, went to a cafe, blew off all my classes, and read it in one sitting. It's this pretty short little book. But I sat down there in, in, in this cafe reading this thing because the whole lot's on the line for me. This is the, he's an atheist who's going to tell me why I should go on living. And the book starts off really good. It starts off with, a, uh, I, I, I believe his first sentence is, um, the only really important philosophical question is, why shouldn't we commit suicide? It's like, okay, I'm with you. Now, this guy's tracking with me. And then he, he kind of flushes out you know, all the false ways that we try to not commit suicide by having faith, by you know, uh, running from the question, by trying to become shallow, whatever. He rules out all these false ways. And then his way, his, his ultimate answer is this. He takes you back to this Greek hero, Sisyphus. And he and, and talks about how heroic he was and valiant and strong because even though everything said he should not go back and live one day longer, he sneered at the gods and he did it. So now he's condemned for all eternity to push a boulder up a hill. But the book ends by, by Camus saying, surely we must picture Sisyphus smiling as he does so. Camus' whole idea is basically this, that by choosing not to commit suicide, you win. Because... Everything tells you you should commit suicide. It's irrational to go on living. 
Who says that life is meaningless? It's absurd. It's pointless. It's got nothing. It's, and, and you need to be aware of that and feel the pain of that. That's what authenticity is. That's courageous. But looking at the meaninglessness and absurdity of life without trying to dull your consciousness or dull the pain or run away from it or commit intellectual suicide by having faith in something, rather look at that, sneer at that, accept that, embrace it, and go on living. Pushing that stupid rock up a hill, but smile when you do it because at least you're choosing to do it. That's his solution. And see, I'm thinking as I'm sitting in that cafe reading this thing, that if that is the best they've got to offer, I'm in serious trouble. That's the best. That's what keeps my professor friend happy or gives him a sense of meaning. I'm thinking to myself, if this is true, that there is no value, there is no morality, there is no reason, no rationality, we're just, it's just chemicals in motion, all, we're just complex amoebas, the universe is like a giant rock floating in the middle of nothing, it's just a little bit more complex. If that is true, then where do you get this value of should, or that we ought to, be, or courageous, where did that come from? Courageous, valiant, authentic. Um, where did those values come from? Why should you do anything? Where does this should come from? How did that sneak in there? I'm reading this thinking, this doesn't make any sense. It's absurd and it doesn't help at all. And then that led to a very interesting insight. It didn't come overnight for me. it, It was planted in that restaurant, but it still is to me the greatest indicator or the greatest proof that God exists. And it began that later on that evening as I'm sitting in that cafe from morning to night reading this book. Here's what I thought. How is it possible? How is it possible that I, who am just a chance product of a natural evolutionary process, how is it possible that I have these longings for things that nature doesn't supply? How could nature evolve a being that's out of sync with nature? That's the question. And I think it's a good question. So here I am longing for meaning, but the universe is meaningless. How did evolution produce that? Here I am, a being who's trying to make sense out of the world, but there is no sense. I assume, in fact, science assumes, that the world is rational. That's That we use our reasoning. We think it's structured rationally. But if there is no supermind behind it, it's not rational. It just is. So why am I longing to make sense out of a rational, a universe as though it was rational when it's irrational? Where did that longing for reason come from? Where did the longing for meaning and purpose come from? Where did the, the, the longing for morality come from? Why do I and most people think that good should overcome evil when there is no good and there is no evil? It just is. How can the universe evolve beings by time and chance that are totally out of sync with itself? It's like the Sahara Desert, the wind blowing over the sand in a certain way and it evolves a carp. All of a sudden, and the carp is sitting there gasping for water. Need water, need water. That'd be absurd because there's no water out there. Why would the universe produce a being that's going to be just miserable longing for something that it never has? You following me on this? The very fact that I long for it suggests to me that there must be something out there to answer it. It's like there's no other instance you can find where you have a longing that isn't met by nature. So you get thirsty. Fortunately, there's water. You need, to, you need to breathe. You have this terrible need to breathe. And it's always there. How irritating. But fortunately, there's air. Now think about it. You have sex drives. And when you get married, there's sex. There's, there's, there is an outlet there. Um, you, you like radishes. There's radishes. 
How, you know, my, my wife, with our second child, she got his, she's got his bizarre cravings. Just bizarre. And one night, honestly, she woke me up one in the morning, and she wanted radishes. Radishes with peanut butter. We didn't have any radishes. We did have peanut butter, but peanut butter alone wasn't enough. So she sent me out looking for radishes. I had to come back, had two, two bags of radishes, and she scarfed them. Just scarfed them. Oh, oh. She's like me with Q-tips. <laughs> well, what would happen? Suppose there was no such thing as radishes. Yeah, she had to have radishes with peanut butter. I mean, do you ever have that craving? It's so specific. I want this. Well, what if you had a craving for a this, something that specific, and it didn't exist? Nothing else would do. It's like if you've ever, you know, gotten off of an addiction. You know, you quit smoking. Well, you want tobacco so bad, and the chocolate doesn't help. Uh, you know, the, the nothing helps. You just, I just want a cigarette. Just there. What, what would it be like if the universe evolved beings who have a longing for a cigarette, but there were no such things as cigarettes? It's craving for something. That's exactly the situation. If there is nothing out there that answers our longing for meaning, morality, and rationality, then we are absurd carps who evolved by chance in the middle of the Sahara. Absolutely absurd. It, 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 it just struck me as absolutely absurd that that would be the case. The alternative view is this, that I have these longings for a reason. And the reason I long for the world to make sense is because it is, in fact, rational. It's there to be figured out, which means there must be a rational being. You can't have a reason without a brain that's reasoning. So there must be a super brain that is, that is behind my non-super brain. And there must be... A purpose. If I'm longing for a purpose, there must be a purposing agent out there who created me. And, and uh, if, if I long for good to overcome evil, it's because there must be a, 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 some... A, the ultimate context of the universe must be moral and rational and purposeful. And if that is true, now I can totally understand why I am the way I am. In other words, if I and you are made in the image of God, it makes sense that we have the longings that we have. If there is no God out there, then all, then, then it's just absurd. Absurd, idiotic, painful, pointless nonsense. That got me believing that there must be a personal God. Uh, that, that the, the, I couldn't be an atheist anymore. There must be a personal God. But now the question came, this is the second thing that led me back into faith. The question becomes, if there's a personal God and created me on purpose... Created humanity on purpose, whether you used evolution or not, I, I, I don't care. But the fact that we are, that we are who we are, well, then, then you have to ask, well, then what is the purpose? Uh, I, I would create a race of beings and then just kind of leave them without contacting them or having any dialogue with them or anything like that. So I, if God is a super example of who I am, a super personal being, then... He must be, I would think, trying to contact us. So now the question is, has, has, do I have any reason to think that God has spoken to us? And that is what led me back to a reconsideration of the person of Jesus Christ. I began to find some intelligent Christians, uh, mainly in books. Uh, I, I discovered C.S. Lewis, and back in the 70s, Francis Schaeffer, and, and some other good, uh, Os Guinness, and, and, and some others who were really good, sharp thinkers. And began to read some other stuff. I wasn't a believer yet, but I wanted to give it, I, I, I want to check out how do they handle some of the questions that I had going into this. 
Uh, one of the things that really impressed me that, I, that this is why I have a heart to communicating this to, to college students is that it's so important. And I mentioned this a little bit last night that that I had to to get through the to, to get through this period. I had to like I, I couldn't have a house of cards theology. The, the the theology I was given when I first became a Christian said that everything hangs together. Like like believing in the literal uh, Adam and Eve is as important as believing in the literal resurrection, which is as important as believing that Samson literally got stronger when his hair got longer, which is as important as believing in the blah 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 blah. Everything was equally important, and to be a Christian, you have to accept all of it. Well, uh, that 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 means your faith is only as strong as your weakest link. You'll knock one card out, and the house of cards comes falling down. That's what happened to me. What this did is it gave me a sense of proportion. I began to say, what is this the most important thing? I don't care about Samson. I don't care. I'll figure that out later. But what I want to know is, has God, who I now believe in, has, has he ever contacted us? Is he, does he want a relationship with us? What is the purpose for the whole thing? And so I focused on Christ. And what I, I came to the conclusion, I can't go over all this now. I've written a number of books on, on this topic, if you're interested. But as I looked at the Gospels now, not as inspired documents, because I didn't believe in this, but as, but as uh, just uh, historical records, and evaluate them the way you'd evaluate any historical records, more or less reliable, put them to the same criteria, same assessment as you do anything, I came to the conclusion that there's no way to make sense out of the birth of the early church unless the Gospel authors are telling the truth, at least basically telling the truth. In other words, I, I, I can't explain why these contemporaries of Jesus are going around saying that he did these miracles and made these claims and died on the cross and rose from the dead unless it actually happened. You don't have time for a legend to develop and they got no motive to lie. And, and that, that in a nutshell was, led me to think, and C.S. Lewis really helped me on this whole thing, led me to come to the conclusion that this is rooted in history. This is rooted in history. And that is what eventually led me to the conclusion that, that there is a God and he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And I, everything else I believe as a Christian comes as a result of that. Even my belief in the Bible is inspired. That's not a primary belief for me. Jesus is the primary belief. I believe the Bible is inspired because I believe in Jesus and he seems to in, in, endorse that. And so that was kind of how I got into the faith game again. Actually, I, there was no point where I made a decision to do it. I didn't like, okay, now I repent and believe. It rather was I sort of all of a sudden found myself doing it. I found myself having faith. I, I, I was starting to live this way. And I started a dialogue with him. And, I, and so I, I, it was like I, I, I'm, I'm in the stream. And that's what faith is. I, I'm moving a certain direction. Began to find other Christians to hang out with and things of that sort. Now, here's the thing. So faith is, is then the decision. And it can be a one-time thing, or it can be something you do in a decisive moment when you get into it. It can be something you just kind of grow in. But either way, it's something that we're supposed to always be growing in and always be developing in. But faith is saying, if, since I have, I'm willing to bet my life on this, and therefore I will live this way. I will live as if it's true. I will live as if it's true. That's the essence of faith. It's not about what's going on between your ears. It's about your commitment to live a certain way. I'm going to now live as though there was a personal God. I'm going to live as though I have a purpose. I'm going to live as though Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to live as though... Uh, he's, he's, he surrounds me moment by moment. I'm going to live as though he's got a will for my life and, and I can know it. 
I'm going to live as though, I'm going to see the world as though I live forever. Now, that's not pretending. That's living by faith. And I've got good reasons to do it. The other way to live is as though none of that is true. Holy Spirit, help us to see this right now. This, I, listen to this. You're, you're living in a story however you live. And that is faith. In our culture, we are conditioned with almost every television program you watch, almost every movie you see, a good portion of the magazines that you pick up and read, the news you hear. Everything around us systematically conditions us to live as though Jesus is not Lord, as though there is no God that we have to give an account towards, as though you don't live forever. Now, of course, you don't know that that's true, which is why you're living by faith. It's the American dream. You're taught to live as though what's really important is how successful you are, how, how, much, how much recognition you get, what kind of car you drive, how, 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 what kind of clothes you wear, uh, how comfortable can your life be. You're, we're taught to live as though. The, the here and now is all that matters. Grab all the gusto you can get. Look out for number one. We're conditioned to live that way. That is faith. It's faith in the American dream. Live as though that was really appropriate. Jesus offers us, and the Gospels offer us, a very different story. To live as though Jesus Christ was Lord means you don't live that story. To live as though God, there's a personal God that you give an account to, as though Jesus Christ is the revelation of that God, as though He has all claims on your life, as though you, He's your only allegiance, as though you're citizens of the kingdom of God rather than citizens of any nation on this planet. To live that way, I submit to you, is in contradiction to the faith that we're taught in this culture. Absolutely antithetical. To live this story, the gospel story, the kingdom story, to be a follower of Jesus, to live as though that is true, that's what faith is, is to live in contradiction to the faith of uh, the world. Paul calls it the flesh, sarks. Living according to the pattern of this world. What what is sad is that, that a lot of folks... We, we, we believe in Jesus, we say we believe in Jesus, but the story we live in is actually that story. Well, we don't change stories. 99% of our time, we're functional atheists. Holy Spirit, help us to wake up to this. Right? I just feel this, I, 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 a weightiness to this word right here. What story do you live in, like right now? See, to make Jesus Christ Lord, it means... Are you certain of it? No. No, not in any kind of rigorous, logical sense. But hopefully you believe that you have enough reasons to, to make this change, to wager everything, to wager everything, to p- put your life on the line. That's what faith is. And so what is it to live right now like Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, it means you live, among other things, it means you live as though you're not Lord. What it means to confess Him as Lord is that you submit to Him. That's what the word means. Jesus at one point says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't, don't uh, do the things that I teach? Well, it's because, see, it's a contradiction. Say, you are Lord means I submit to you. To call you Lord and yet for me to go about doing my own thing is a contradiction. It renders lordship meaningless. It renders faith in his lordship meaningless. What it means then is we submit our life to him. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, if he is the revelation of God, really nothing else matters. More than just doing that moment by moment. Now look at this. Here's what happens. Am I about out of time? I, I, I got, okay, I, I, I want to make this point. Because this is, this is the crucial one. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. 
In fact, I want to pray right now. Father, I pray you open our eyes to this all-important truth right here. Free us from the story of this culture which blinds us in so many ways to living in the reality of your kingdom. Open our eyes, Lord. Here's what happens. Go back to the marriage analogy. When I said I do to my wife 32 years ago, I was pledging my life to her, right? That's what it means. But the fact that pledge of my life was not the life that I pledged. Follow this. The life that I pledged to her is the life I've lived every moment since I made the pledge. I pledged my life to her, but that pledge of life was not the life that I pledged. The life that I pledged is the life that I've been living every moment since. The quality of my marriage isn't determined by the fact that I made a pledge 32 years ago. The quality of my marriage is determined by how well I'm living out that pledge right now. The reality of the pledge, the life I pledged, is lived moment by moment because it's the only life you've got. The only, the only thing that's real about you is right now. The past is gone. The future is not yet. You are here. So the question, the all-important question isn't really, did you confess Jesus Christ when you were five years old or 15 years old or five days ago? I'm glad you did that. But that's not very relevant. The question is, is are you submitted now? Because the promise you made, whether you knew it or not, when you submitted your life to Christ, the promise you made was to submit your life. And your life is lived moment by moment by moment by moment. So the pledge of submission means something only to the extent that you're submitted now, you're submitted now, you're submitted now, you're submitted now. That's what it means to confess Him as Lord and to surrender your moment by moment life to Him. I came to the point where I, I, I said, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to walk this way. I'm going to see the world this way. Sometimes I feel it and sometimes I don't. Sometimes i got a lot of questions, sometimes I don't. But whatever happens, for better or for worse, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to live in this reality. And that reality, the reality of faith, is lived moment by moment by moment. This massively confronts, and I'll start tonight by picking this up uh, at this point, but this massively confronts a paradigm, a kind of a magical paradigm that a lot of folks have because of that view of faith I gave last night, that false view of faith where you just got to talk yourself into some kind of a gimmick. You think that the pledge is is sort of a magical thing that automatically means you have this relationship with God. When in fact, the pledge is a commitment to have a relationship with God. It is not itself the relationship. The only relevant question is when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He wasn't saying, oh, do that on Tuesday, but then you can coast the rest of the week. To seek first the kingdom of God means at every moment, at every moment, your main objective is to be under the kingdom of God, the reign of God. That's what the word means, which means submitted to Him. And so I, I, I would encourage you with this. Starting now, starting now. See, we are conditioned to live as atheists. Let's admit it. Most of our conscious moments, we don't have God in our mind. Most of our decisions, we don't consult Him for. We're just programmed. And don't feel indicted for this. This isn't a guilt thing. This is how we're conditioned. I, I want to do this, I do this. I want to do this, I do this. I want to buy that, I buy that. I want to go over here. I never invite God, unless, you do, unless you're intentional in doing otherwise, we don't invite God into our moment-by-moment internal dialogue or our other dialogues. We live as atheists, and then at a worship service we go back and worship God, and then we go to a church service, and then we, do our, uh, we have a little compartmentalized kingdom stuff. Bible time, prayer time, da-da-da-da. But in between, we're atheists. Uh, we are our Lord of our own life. 
I'm Lord of my own ice cream cone. I went over and bought the ice cream cone. I chose this. I do it. And, and, and we don't invite God into the inner, the, the moment by moment dialogue. You see what I'm saying? The, 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 the tr- true faith, moment by moment faith is this, where you try to practice, you try to cultivate an awareness of God's presence moment by moment. It's the essence of discipleship. I, I, I had, came out this last year with a book on this called Present Perfect, if you want to go further on. It's, it's called Practicing the Presence of God. It is, I think, the essence of faith, where you're trying to act, transform your consciousness. And that sounds fancy, but it just means being, uh, being aware of reality. Because what's real, if you believe this, and I think most of you do, what's real is that God is in this room right now. God is right next to you. His, you, are, you are surrounded by His love. You are submerged in His love every moment. So when we're not aware of this, think about this, we're, we're not accurate. We're, 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 uh, we're, we're filtering him out. And, that, and we're conditioned to filter him out. What I'm saying is the essence of faith, it's not psychological certainty about things or anything like that, but you've made a decision to go this way, and the essence of going this way is to now frame reality correctly. He is here right now surrounding you. And will you invite him in on your life? Talk to him. I love what Kelly said earlier. She's learning how to have a pray throughout the day. Don't make pray, don't compartmentalize your relationship with God away from you know like you have a secular side and a, rather bring it all together, fuse it all together, weave it all together. Try to make your thought process a we. That's one way of doing it. Instead of saying I'm going to, to say should we? And you're now talking to, to to God. People will think you're profoundly weird. Maybe you need some medication. Because you're always like, they will. If, if, you're, if, you, if you vocalize any of this, you know, what do we think about this? Who's the we? You're all by yourself, Greg. Well, it's me and Jesus. But see, what it is, is to invite him into the self-talk of your head, right? There's always a, a self-talking and a self-listening. That's what thought is. Well, make it a three-way process. God, come into my thoughts. Be part of my everyday life. What you did 15 years ago was wonderful, but it doesn't, it's not very relevant when you surrendered your life to Christ. Right now, this moment, can you surrender your life to Christ? And now, how about this moment? Can we remain aware of his presence and yielded to his presence? And it's possible to do a billion questions in the middle of that. You can, there's a ton of questions. Fun. Let's talk about it. I, oh, important stuff. But to get involved in this, you only have to answer one question. And that is, are you confident enough that Jesus Christ is Lord to make him Lord? To, and to start living this moment and now this moment as though he really was Lord. Because I believe he really was. So, Father, I just thank you, God, for the unusual, right now, very unusual uh, way I feel you moving. Uh, and just the unusual nature of this, this retreat. Uh, but, Lord, I thank you that you're Lord and you have right to change. You, you have right to do whatever you want. And, uh, Lord, we're just going to listen to you and respond to you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, would you, starting now, starting this moment right here, uh, Lord, pull us. We're asking for an extraordinary pull towards awareness, to be aware of, 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 of your presence and of your love. And, Lord, as we now go and, and sing another song or, or play a game or have a dialogue with a friend or when we eat, eat, eat lunch or when we're having questions at a Q&A time, Lord, help us to be aware that you are, you are here like the air we breathe, but, but closer, and that you are real, and that you're not just mere belief, you're a reality. And help us to live in that presence and to think in that presence and to talk in that presence and to pray in that presence. Father, tear down every wall in our life that separates us from you. All the compartments. Free us from our self-lordship, from the ways that we try to grab back the handle of our life. And, and Lord, forgive us for the ways that we screen you out of our awareness. 
Help us to live by faith, moment by moment by moment. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God, moment by moment by moment. We surrender ourselves to you this moment, and now this one, and now this one. And by your grace and empowering spirit, every moment after, in Jesus' name, amen. Stay present.